0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come here together on this beautiful day and join in the song of the Lord together. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit. We know that these things can miraculously change our hearts and our minds, miraculously change our lives, and I ask that you remove every barrier to that happening over this next 45 minutes, Lord. I, I, I pray that Uh, that you get me out of the way of the working of your word and the working of your spirit and that any troubles any any memories of the week or thoughts of the future just fade away in the majesty of your word and the majesty of the work the holy spirit can do here and that we have open hearts and open minds um, for changed lives to your glory i pray for these things in jesus's name Amen. amen and you can all be seated and so There's this funny saying that they have about Marines. Uh, Maybe you guys have have heard this. It's poking fun at them a little bit. It it goes that when Marines are on patrol, all they ever want to talk about is girls. And then when Marines are with girls, all they really ever want to talk about is being on patrol. (laughs) You may have heard a similar saying about fighter pilots and flying. Um, And it's it's in in good humor. But I, I have to be honest with you, it was not my experience in the Marine Corps. In fact, after being in the field for a couple of weeks and eating nothing but MREs, do you guys know what MREs are? It's an acronym. It stands for meal, comma, ready to eat. All three of those words are a lie. It's this amalgam of of food that's been stuffed into into bags and packages. It has a shelf life of seven years. And so you can imagine what it tastes like and and so after a couple of weeks of eating just MREs or even worse if supply lines are down for some reason of Of having nothing at all and in my experience what marines really just wanted to talk about was food And in fact, I have distinct memories of sitting with three other grown men four people as a tank crew, so We're sitting on top of a tank in the evening and had a, had a couple of hours to spare and we were just literally spending an hour regaling each other with meticulous detail of the food that we had eaten or the food that we were going to eat when we went back home. The whole time salivating, our stomachs are, are, are grumbling. And if you've ever really been hungry, you know exactly what I'm talking about. right? And, and, and maybe it shouldn't surprise us. Food really has just a central role in our lives, doesn't it? The Bureau of Labor and Statistics tells us that the average American spends three hours a day buying, preparing eating, and cleaning up after meals. That's 21 hours a week just on food. And, I mean, this this makes sense, I suppose. We know that, that food dramatically impacts our health and well-being, right? We know our diet's causally linked to, to disease like cancer and, and heart disease. We know it impacts our mental health as well. You guys have all seen someone who's hangry, right? Maybe that's, maybe that's you. Um, sorry, sweetheart. Jenny and I sometimes have fights sometimes, they're just like, oh, this is, I, I can't believe this is going, as an irreconcilable difference, and then we'll go and have a sandwich and come back, and it's like, this was not that big of a deal. <laughs> have you guys ever had that experience, right? Food is central to our lives, and it's not just as, as, as fuel. When we're in community, we're almost always eating, right? You catch up, you do it over lunch. Our holidays, you have, you have Thanksgiving turkey, you, you have Easter ham, you have king's cake after Christmas, you have black-eyed peas on New Year's, you, you have 4th of July barbecue. We have cake for our birthday. We have cake for our anniversary. We have cake for our graduation. We have cake for our retirement, right? And this is cross-cultural. We'll see this in the cross-cultural festival that we're going to have and all the amazing food that we have there. But, but you have Chinese dumplings on New Year's. I, I think that's good luck. The Swedish eat pickled herring at midsummers. Google did not know why. I, I couldn't figure it out. Salt at one point in time was a global currency. There's just no question whatsoever that food is a central feature of our lives. And so now that I've gotten you guys all hungry, you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with Scripture? Well, it turns out an awful lot. It turns out that the depth of our experience in our lives with food, the depth of our understanding of food, is, is a central metaphor that God uses throughout the Bible to teach us about Himself and about our relationship to Him. And so I wanted to Forgive the pun. I wanted to set the table with this thought, these thoughts about food and how it, how it impacts our lives. And we'll see today more to the point as we look at, in John chapter 6, at the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, that Jesus uses this metaphor in conjunction with the imagery of this miracle to teach us much about himself. And in particular, he's going to teach us, he's going to confirm that he was God He's going to clarify what this metaphor of being fed by God means with relation to him and, and in the New Testament church. And he's going to call the New Testament church into his service in a very particular way. So three C's. He's going to confirm, he's going to clarify, and he's going to call. You see, guys, it's an alliter it's an alliteration. That's the first time I've been up here like five times that that the Holy Spirit's given me an alliteration. So I feel like a real a real preacher. Up here now, but before we get to the seas, I think we really have to we really have to dig in We really have to understand the depth of this metaphor of being fed by god and to do that We have to know that that this this is a a narrative thread that runs through the entire bible In fact, it begins all the way back in the first couple of chapters of, of genesis And think with me back to the garden of eden and there we read that when god created the garden He created it with many trees Some of them pleasing to look at and some of them good for food, right? And so it was there in the Garden of Eden where man and God were walking together in the cool of the afternoon, where man and God were perfectly aligned, where where there was no sickness, there was no death. Man and God were in intimate relationship with each other. We see there in the Garden of Eden that man was drawing his nourishment directly and miraculously and completely from God. And then, of course, you have the fall. And interestingly, For our discussion today how did the fall occur eating food that was forbidden right we see this thread and then we see this thread in the curse as well and the language of the curse itself you have this you have this theme appears and turn with me if you'd like to to genesis 3 17 through 19 i'm going to read it but this is the curse that the language of the curse god says cursed is the ground for your sake And toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. And the sweat of your blood you will eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For dust you are. And to dust you shall return. So it's with this contrast, this contrast between the world of Eden where mankind was in perfect harmony with God and perfectly sustained by God, and the world of the curse, where mankind is, is in rebellion against God and draws his sustenance, where? From his toil, from, from pain and suffering, from the world, from the earth. It's in this contrast that we start to see this metaphor starting to take, take shape. And this metaphor, it's fleshed out even more in the account of Israel and the Exodus. And think about the beginning of the account of Exodus. Israel at that point is essentially living out explicitly the curse, aren't they? They're enslaved to the tyrant Pharaoh. They're grinding out their lives day after day for the glory of the Pharaoh. They're quite literally in toil drawing their bread from from the cursed ground. And from the sweat of their face, they're getting their bread. They're living out the curse there. And in His mercy and in His love, that's where God finds them, and He miraculously delivers them from that tyranny, doesn't He, with with the plagues? But He doesn't deliver them to food again, to the the land of milk and honey, right? He delivers them to the wilderness, right? And so so out of tyranny, as so often we do too, we go from tyranny in the world to, to not to paradise, but into the wilderness, don't we? And there God meets us, and there is where God met Israel as well. And we see... In the wilderness, that God once again started to dwell among his people. That Israel had, had launched out of tyranny and, and fellowship with, with God and entrusting God. And there he was leading them by a pillar of, of, of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. He was dwelling with them in, in the tabernacle. And so once again, you see mankind and God dwelling together in, in a very unique way. And, and there again, we see that God starts to sustain his people, to nourish his people directly and miraculously. And we see this in Exodus. Exodus chapter 16, verse 13, we read about this. It says, That evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is this? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread of the Lord. It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather what they need. So do you see this parallel here? And Deuteronomy 8.23 makes it explicit that there's a link between Israel's heart for God and this manna that they received in the desert. Deuteronomy 8.23 says, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, and, and which your fathers did not know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So you see this parallel here between our relationship with God and being being nourished by Him, and in this case by, by the manna? And the Psalms pick up on this theme as well. Psalm sixty three, verses one and five. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land there is no water, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Psalm 42 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Jesus himself talks about this in, in John chapter 4, where he's talking about his relationship with the Father. He's, he's, he hasn't eaten, and, and his disciples say, Rabbi, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them that I have food that you know nothing about. His disciples say to each other, could someone have bought him food? My food, says Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So pulling all this together, I think what we see is that this metaphor teaches us that God wants to be in this continuous intimate relationship where we trust him and obey him, and it's through that relationship that we're sustained by God. That's what this metaphor is teaching us. And so I think now we're in a position to think about what the question is that, that, that we originally raised, and how does that metaphor play itself out in Jesus' life? How does Jesus manifest this metaphor. And, and like I said, this it, this narrative thread runs through the entire Bible, and then Jesus steps into this narrative thread, I think, for the first time in the passage that we're going to look at today, which is John ch- chapter 6, where he this is the miracle that, that we all have heard of and referred to as the feeding of the 5,000. And here we'll see, and I'll, I'll use uh, use alliteration again, that, that through that miracle, and in conjunction with this metaphor of being fed by God, Jesus confirms, in fact, that he is God, He clarifies what it means to be fed by God in his ministry and in the New Testament, and he calls the church uh, into his service through all of this. And so I think probably the best way to start unpacking all of this is just to to read this account and to be washed by the word here. And so turn to John chapter 6, and this is going to be verses uh, 1 through 13, 1 through 14, I think. But we're going to be here in John chapter 6 for a while, so um, it would be worth turning there if you have a physical Bible. And after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs which he had performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on a mountain, and here he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that everyone would have even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad over here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there is much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number, about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up, filled the twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men... When they had seen a sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come back into the world. So before we explore this any further, I, I want to take a step back and think about what Christ is really doing here. It's easy to sort of just gloss over this, but, but the fact is that Christ doesn't do these miracles just for the sake of doing a miracle. Of course, he wants to help people, but that's not the overall point. What he's doing is he's, he's communicating something specific and something profound to his followers through these miracles. I'm reminded of what John, uh, Brother John Tillery talked about when he was teaching on the, Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Do you remember that? He was talking about how the Israelites had this tradition where they understood that their prophets would, would put on these, these intentional instructional demonstrations in order to speak, for God to speak through those pro- prophets. Uh, to, the, to the people. And so the Israelites would have understood when Jesus cleared the temple that this is what he was doing. This was an intentional act. It wasn't just causing a ruckus. And I think that same intentionality you can see in Jesus' miracle, miracle here of feeding the 5,000. He's instructing them through this. I mean, just just think about for a second... The way this would have played out, I mean, you have Jesus, he'd, he's retired to, the, to this mountain with his disciples, presumably to, to have some, some rest, I think, is how we typically understand it. And then this great horde of people rushes to join him there. We don't see this in the, in the Gospel of John, but in the other Gospels, it says that Jesus saw them like a, like a flock of lost sheep, right? Sheep without a shepherd. And so they were directionists, the directionists they were leaderless. there was this commotion. And then Jesus had compassion on them. And then we see him in that compassion bring his disciples over to himself. And then he starts this this Socratic dialogue, right? He's not asking them, how are we going to feed these people? Because he doesn't know. John says that explicitly. He's starting a discourse with them. He's saying, okay, guys, what do you think? How do we feed these people, right? And then the, the disciples fumble around a little bit with their responses, as we would have done, right, if we were questioned by Jesus about something like this. But then Jesus says, he says, okay, 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 okay. Just have the people sit down. Can you see that Jesus is teaching here through all of this? And then imagine how this would have happened. The people, you know, the, all the bustling would have stopped. The disciples, they would all sit down. They sat down on the grass. They have, they have what, what the commentators say, something like 20,000 people would have been on this, on this mountainside, all looking at Jesus, all in silence, all expecting something from him. That's what they were there for, right? To receive something from Jesus. And so you have this dead silence. And then the little boy would have come up with his barley loaves and his fish. I, mean, I imagine maybe one of my boys, right, shyly coming up. And then, and then you have the, the, he gives them the bread. He has these, these loaves of bread. And he gives thanks, right, because that's proper. I think maybe there's some dramatic tension there too. And then he starts to break the bread. And really think about what this would have looked like. There's 20,000 people there. Jesus would have broken the bread and broken the bread and broken the bread and handed it out. And imagine what would have been the reaction in the crowd as they realized what was going on. It's not just oh he broke the bread and distributed it. No no no. I think there were people who who have been dumbfounded and just sat and stared at the bread in their hands, too overwhelmed to eat. I think some people would have started praying or maybe chanting prayers as the Israelites did, right? And so there could have been little pockets of commotion where people are praying out loud or shouting out loud. I think some people may have fled in terror. We see that reaction to some of Jesus' miracles, right? Uh, An adverse reaction. I think some people would have shouted for joy and laughed out loud. I think I might have wept. But in any case, this was a powerful, powerful event. And everyone would have known that Jesus was speaking to them through it. He was communicating to them through it. And I think one of the first things that he was communicating was that he was in fact God. He was confirming his deity. So how does he do that? I mean, I think first and most fundamentally, he's doing something that's physically impossible. He's exercising his complete mastery and power over over the created existence, right? He's doing something that only God could do. Ergo, he is God. Right? And so like all of his other miracles, in a way, just through the miracle itself, he's demonstrating that he's God. But I think he's doing a lot more than that. Um, one thing that I think he's also doing is he's also invoking this imagery of the Israelites in the wilderness receiving uh, manna from God, miraculously receiving manna from God. And Jesus himself makes that connection later in chapter 6, as Jesus would have intended and expected throughout the rest of chapter 6. This miracle sparks this this debate, this discussion about what it could all possibly mean. And in that discussion, we see that the Israelites ask him at some point—I don't have time to get into all of it, and, and, and Brother Tillery will preach on this in detail later— But they ask him at some point, they say, what miracle are you going to do? What wonder are you going to work that's similar to what Moses did in the desert, giving the, the manna to the Israelites in the desert? And Jesus responds to them. He says, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is making clear here in in response to this questioning, and it's ironic that they ask him this question right after he just created bread from nothing, right? I think that's intentional here. But he's making clear that the man in the desert did not come from Moses. It came from God, right? And so God created bread, created this manna, ex nihilo, out of nothing, miraculously, for his people, for his sheep in the wilderness in order to give them life. And then just... Right before here, the, the event that led up to this discussion, Jesus created bread ex nihilo out of nothing in order to feed his lost sheep in the wilderness. Right? And so, do you see how Jesus is painting this picture where he's coextensive or he's equal to God by using this imagery? And so, God, he's confirming that he is God through this miracle. He does it in other ways here, too. He says, when he's, he says later, I am the bread of life, this I am that he uses is the same I am that God uses when he tells Moses, who sent him to tell his people? Who sent him? God says, "Tell them I am sent you." It's the same I am. It's the only only time it's used in the Bible, except when Jesus refers to himself. He also says he's the bread that came down from heaven. Only God comes down from heaven, right? So in all these ways, Jesus is confirming his deity through this miracle to his people. That's one of the things that he's communicating to them, and he's communicating the same thing to us too in this account. And but Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? And, and he can't because. He's Jesus, and, and Jesus' work, this, this metaphor might have been complete at this point in, in the Old Testament, that God is, is miraculously providing sustenance for his people, but, but it's not complete with regard to Jesus. We know that Jesus' ministry, and in particularly his sacrifice, sort of ushers in this this whole new era of the New Testament church's ability to interact with God and interact with Jesus. We interact with God in a whole new way by virtue of Jesus and his sacrifice for us, and so what Jesus has to do is he has to revise this metaphor so that it's, it's equally applicable to him. So it, so it corresponds to our relationship with Jesus in the New Testament. He has, to, he has to clarify what this metaphor means in relation to him. And so to see how he makes that clarification, we can go down to, to verse 34, still in John chapter 6. This conversation continues, and and after Jesus has talked about this bread of life that comes down, or the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, the people have the same reaction we probably would. They're like, give us this bread. Yes, that sounds awesome. Give it to us. Right? And then Jesus' response to them is is absolutely staggering. I think we could just read right past it, but for for the Israelites they're hearing it, and I think if we fully understand it, we can understand that it's absolutely revolutionary. Jesus declares in verse 35, he says, they say, Give me this bread. Give me this bread of life. And he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The, the Israelites are coming to him and they're saying, give us this bread. Give us this bread of life. And he says, no, 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 no. no. I'm not going to give you the bread of life. I am the bread of life. What he's saying is this nourishment, this sustenance, this, this animation that comes from God and, through our re- and, and from God as, as He feeds us, as He gives us life. It doesn't come from God. it comes from our relationship with God. What he's doing is he's taking that parallel that we explored in the Old Testament that was, that was implied about the relationship between God and and the people and being nourished by him. It was implied in the Old Testament, and he's making it explicit with regard to him. He's already confirmed that he is God. He's confirmed his deity. But what he's doing now is he's saying he is a God that also wants an intimate relationship with us. He is the bread that we go to. We don't get the bread from him. And this would have been fundamentally different from how the Israelites experienced the manna in the desert. And what Jesus is saying is he's making a distinction here where he's saying, look, to the extent that you see God as this overwhelming, all-powerful, distant presence that just provides for you, I mean, all all of those things are true, of course. God is an overwhelming presence. We know that we hear, we read that that he dwells in unapproachable light. We know that no man can look on his face and live. Yes, he dwelt among the Israelites in the tabernacle, but he dwelt in, in this holy of holies. And if you went inside of there and you weren't properly prepared, you'd die. Right? So there is this idea that God is this unapproachable, unimaginably powerful entity. But what Christ is saying is, if that's your understanding of God, while it may be true, it's incomplete in your relationship with Jesus. What he's saying is he wants an intimate, loving relationship with us as well. And Jesus doesn't just stop there. He continues to provide even more vivid imagery to add even more layers to what this metaphor means with relation to him. And so we can go down to verses 53 through 58, of, uh, still in John chapter 6. And Jesus says to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. We see again here at the very end that Jesus is again distinguishing between the the distinct experience the Israelites had with the desert and the manna and what he has done here. But I think even more importantly is he's pushing this metaphor of him being the bread of God to its absolute limit, right? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. I think he's probably even pushing it beyond the the point where this metaphor breaks down, right? And he's doing it on, on purpose. He's doing it to give us an even more profound image of what our relationship with him can look like. And I think what's most important and, and the first layer that he's adding with this imagery is, think about it, if you're going to eat the flesh of something and drink the blood of something, it has to have been killed first, right? It has to have been sacrificed for that purpose. And so I think the first layer that he's adding by, by this really graphic language here is this idea that in order for us to, to receive the bread of life, for us to receive eternal life from him, it requires his own self-sacrifice. And Jesus makes this link explicit in the, in the Last Supper, doesn't he? Remember when he's talking to his disciples on the day before he was crucified, he takes the bread in their presence, and what does he do? He breaks it, and he says, this is my body. And then the next day, He goes to the cross for them. He's linking this bread, this idea of this bread, and the breaking of His body to to His sacrifice. And so from this, we can see that this this imagery of of Christ's body being the sacrifice, of being broken, and that's the bread of life. That's what gives us eternal life through that sacrifice. We can see this actually starts, and the way I described it, on the hilltop and with the feeding of the 5,000 where Christ is standing up there and over and over again he's standing in front of this 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 mass of lost sheep right it's lost humanity is what it's symbolizing and he's standing in front of them and he breaks the bread which we know now is his body right and then what does he do he hands it out to all of them in order to give them life And then he explains in chapter 6 that that's what's going on and then he confirms it in the Last Supper with his disciples right before he goes to the cross and then the next day on the cross he lives that metaphor out. He lives that image out. And then 2,000 years later, what do we do? We come in here to remember it by standing up here by breaking bread in front of the sheep and handing it out so they can receive life. right? And so do you guys see that this is the gospel? This is the gospel. The feeding of the 5,000, this, this metaphor of being fed by God, it all leads us to the gospel. It's so profound. It's so profound once you see it. And, and I think that's why this feeding of the 5,000 because it's it's one of Jesus's first glimpses, really, of the of the of the gospel and and what it's going to mean for him and what it means for us. It's so profound. I think that's why this is the miracle that shows up in all four of the gospel accounts. It's the only one, and I think this is it's so profound. I think that's why. the the power of the metaphor doesn't even end there. He's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and if you remember. Back to our discussion at the beginning of, of the message where we're talking about how food impacts our lives, right? If, if, you, if you really think about it, we, we take in this food and it becomes a part of us, doesn't it? it, it our muscles grow, our, our bones grow, if we're wounded, it, 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 it's, our, it's the flesh, the food gives us the flesh to repair and to heal. When we're children, it's the food that we grow from. The food becomes a part of us. And I think this is a part of what Jesus is saying here, too. In this, in this way that, that we can only grasp through imagery and only grasp through metaphor, we become somehow unified with him through this relationship. And Jesus says it explicitly when he's talking to them. In verse 56, he says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. It's this idea of unity. He gives us this vision using a different metaphor in John fifteen five. Where he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, lives in me, and I in him. Jesus lives in us, can bear much fruit. But apart from him, we can do nothing. It's an amazing idea of us achieving somehow unity with Christ through all of this. And then we have, taking even further, this idea of achieving unity with his sacrifice, his death, and his resurrection. It's amazing. In, in, in Romans 6, three we read, all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus. Who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. So now, I, I think we, we have the pieces in place through the, the imagery of this miracle and this metaphor, we can we can see how Jesus has clarified that this metaphor applies to him and his ministry. He is the bread of life. We we partake of that bread of life through a relationship with him. By virtue of that relationship, we achieve unity with him. He becomes a part of us, and we become a part of him in our lives. And ultimately, through that relationship and through his loving self sacrifice for us. We are given the gift of eternal life. Again, it's the gospel. With with, with what Jesus has done here with the feeding of the 5,000, with his explanation here and, and, and how this narrative runs through the whole Bible, we can see all the way from Genesis what this metaphor is doing is it's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to his sacrifice for us, for our sins. And It's pointing to the gospel. And so... As we understand this metaphor, as we look at this, this image of the feeding of the 5,000, I don't think we should ever do anything but feel the joy, feel the comfort, feel the peace, be humbled by it, be energized by it, feel the love for Jesus and the lordship of Jesus that we can only find in the gospel. And so once we're at this point, we've, we've, we've confirmed with Jesus that he is in fact the true God, we've clarified what this miracle and the the metaphor of being fed by God means in Jesus' ministry and in His life and our relationship with Him, I think we're ready, we're prepared to receive His calling for us as the New Testament church. And so we saw that the feeding of the 5,000 was Jesus' first sort of invocation of this metaphor of of being fed by God. That's the first time Jesus really lives that out and uses it. But to get to the call from Christ, I think we have to go to the last time that he invokes this metaphor. And so then we can turn to uh, John chapter 21. We're all, I think, very familiar with this dialogue, but this is after Christ's sacrifice. It's after Christ's resurrection, and he's appeared... To his disciples on the beach, and again, interestingly, he's provided them this miraculous meal of fish, and he's sat down and he's eaten a meal of bread and fish with them, and then we have, they have this dialogue over breakfast, right? And so, this is a dialogue he has with Peter, who I think we can safely assume is saved, who's accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So that's the context; he's talking to a saved person, and and here it is, John chapter twenty-one, verse fifteen, and it, it says. A third time he said to him, Simon, son of John. And I think most of us know that this is a progressive form of love, right? So by the time you get to the third love, this is agape. It's the highest form of love. It's sacrificial love for another. So the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. So I'll put the question to you. After all that we've heard, understanding the gospel, understanding our relationship with Christ, do you love Christ? Somebody say yes. Yes? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Feed His lambs. All right? So I'll ask you again, do you guys love Jesus? Yes. Take care of His sheep. Do you guys love Jesus? Feed His sheep. Feed his sheep. This is the command to the New Testament church. This is the command by which Christ launches Peter onto this mission of, of, of founding his church on the earth, right? And so we have to ask ourselves, how do we feed sheep? And, and I think at this point we've been living in the world of metaphor and, and, and imagery. We can turn to the practical now. At some point we have to, right? How, do we, how are we fed by God? How do we actually live this out? And how would we, how would we feed other sheep? It would be the, It's sort of answering the same question because we all know we 're both sheep and shepherds in the church here, right, and so to feed one is is to feed the other how do we how do we feed sheep and I think the answer should be somewhat obvious to us having gone through all of this this learning today and that 's because if we understand that being fed by God is to be in, in close relationship with God, is to be aligned with God, is to be oriented towards God, I think you could say that anything that brings you closer into alignment and closer into relationship with God would, would, would put you in a position to be fed by Him. So being fed by Him, I, I think you could say it's, it's the spiritual disciplines that bring you into closer contact on a daily basis with God. Now, I think Scripture, the, the way it, it, it paints these disciplines, I think it tells us that, that being in the Word— is probably the most paramount of these disciplines. Uh, we saw in Deuteronomy the same quote that Jesus quotes in Deuteronomy, but in Matthew four four, Jesus says, "...man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God." Your words in Jeremiah 15:16 says your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me the gladness of my joy and heart nourished by the word we see over and over again the prophets eating scrolls and eating the word right even in revelation there's a scroll eaten um, by john and so I think that being at jesus's feet every day I think being in the word every day I wish uh, dan kachikas could be here for my plug for the one-year bible but but it, it, being in the word every day, I think is the best way one of the best ways to be nourished By god and, and there are of, of course others you meditate on the word You can be in solitude. You can be in fellowship. You can sing praises to him. All of these things are ways on a daily basis to be fed by God, and I think we've all experienced times when we don't exercise these spiritual disciplines, and we do feel quite hungry and quite thirsty for the Lord's presence in our lives. And so I think these are the tools, and and these are obvious, and I think you could apply these same things that we apply to ourselves to feeding others, right? And so teaching others the word is a way to feed Christ's sheep. And in fact, most commentators, that's how they read this. They read this as a command to pastors to faithfully teach the word to their congregations. And so all these things that we would do individually to be fed by God, by enabling others and helping others and fellowshipping with others to do these same things, would be feeding them as well. And I think all of those things are true, but I, I think there's more to it here than that. And, and I'll end with this. And, and I, I would say that these are the last words that Christ said to his followers on the earth. This is the central command by which Christ founded the mission with regard to, to other believers in the world in his absence. I think that if we oversimplify it, I think that, that we're, we're missing something. And I would just ask you to think with me for a second. So we know that that the New Testament church is commanded to feed Jesus' sheep. And we know that the way Jesus fed his sheep is by sacrificing himself, by sacrificing his body, the bread, right? We're also told as the New Testament church that we are Christ's body. And so wouldn't it follow that in order to feed Christ's sheep would require our own loving self-sacrifice just as it did from Jesus? Couldn't it be that what Christ is doing here in this command to Peter and this command to us is that He's bringing together all of these threads that we've been talking about today, all of these concepts of, of loving self-sacrifice, of relation, of fellowship, of being in alignment together. He's bringing all of those concepts together. He's embedding them into this one great command to His church. And, and, and how, the, how the, it's going to interact with the, how the, the, the fellowship will interact with each other. Couldn't it be that what Christ wants when we walk in the doors on a Sunday morning is not to be thinking about, oh, I hope JR has a good message today. I could really use something from Sunday school to get me going. I really hope the worship band is, is on tune today. Couldn't it be that what Christ is really saying is we should be walking in here thinking about how we can better sacrifice ourselves for the other followers? how we could better burn another ounce of our oil to light the way for another sheep, how we could better find a way to pour ourselves out like a drink offering on the ground for the other for the other believers that are in here. Couldn't it be that, that this is linked to the Great Commission? And couldn't it be that what Christ wants non-believers to see when they come in here is a group of believers who are loving each other and bearing each other's burdens and praying for each other and forgiving each other in such a genuine way, and such a self-sacrificial way, that the only explanation to that non-believer is that that love is miraculous. And the only explanation to that non-believer is that Jesus really is living in us and that we really are living in him. And couldn't it be that that's how Christ wants non-believers to see himself in his church? That's what we see in Paul's ministry, isn't it, when he's feeding his sheep? That's what we see in the pastoral epistles when when Paul is teaching Timothy how to feed his sheep. That's what we see in the New Testament church in Acts, isn't it? Self-sacrifice, love for each other, fellowship. That's what I see here, too. That's what I see in the elders. I see that in the Sunday school teachers, the VBS volunteers. All the people who make this church work, the audiovisual people, the deacons, the librarians, the greeters, the fellowship in this hall, the small groups, the way the Holy Spirit leads the discussions in the morning during the worship service. That's what I see here. That's self-sacrifice. I think that's what Jesus means by feed your sheep. Or, excuse me, by feed my sheep. And so I'll just close, you know, By thanking God, he knows that we can't grasp these concepts directly. There's no way. And so he gives us these metaphors. He gives us these images to help us wrap our minds around it. And I I hope through this metaphor and through this image of feeding the 5,000 that we can see and confirm for ourselves that Christ is indeed the one true God. I hope through this metaphor and through the image of the feeding of the 5,000, we see that he is our Savior He wants a relationship with us and we can live eternally if we come to him, make him our savior. And it's only through his sacrifice, I hope we see the gospel in all of this. And I hope through this metaphor and and through its application to Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000 that we can accept this call and love each other self-sacrificially in this church. And we've seen that this narrative thread runs from the beginning of the Bible, from Genesis all the way through Christ's ministry. And I will just leave you with one more entry in this narrative thread. We're, we're all familiar with Isaiah 53, which gives us this prophetic vision of Christ and his sacrifice as our Messiah. But I will leave you with another couple of verses from Isaiah that, that paints a different picture of, of Christ, I think. And that's as the shepherd feeding his his sheep. Isaiah 25, 6-8 through eight says, In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power this is Isaiah 40, 10 through 11. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. This is Christ. Seek him as your shepherd and be fed by him and feed his sheep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our sustenance. Lord Jesus, you are the bread that gives us life. We thank you so much for your sacrifice that made that possible. And we thank you for being the God that you are. And we thank you for this opportunity to worship you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.